Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you speak to us through the pages of scripture. May we hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Um, it's easy to read an ancient story like this and to think, what on earth has this got to do with me and my life? What relevance could a story about pyramids and pharaohs and straw have to me? Well, if you've ever had the experience where you were in a tough place, you had a choice to make and you chose to follow God, you chose the hard path, you chose to obey and you found that things got harder, not easier for you. Then this story, which isn't just a story, but a piece of real life history. This will be immensely helpful to you, I think, as it has been to me. Now, um, narratives uh, tend to have four parts. Um, an exposition, the scene is set. A conflict, something goes wrong. A climax, things come to a head. And a resolution, everything gets sorted out at the end. Um, and this narrative, though it's based on real life events, is no different. And uh, I hope that knowing that structure, um, along with the excellent way it's just been read for us, will help us to feel something of the dramatic highs and lows and to see what's going on here. And um, so we're going to look at these two and a half chapters uh, in two halves this morning. Um, the first will show us Moses before Pharaoh, a story of despair, uh, the exposition, the conflict, the climax, uh, taking us to the end of chapter five. And the second half will show us Moses before God, a story of deliverance and the resolution. Um, and will take us through to chapter seven, verse seven. So part one, Moses before Pharaoh, a story of despair. We begin where we left off last week, uh, at chapter four, verse 17, uh, with something of a cliffhanger. Uh, we've had this astonishing scene, as Jill's just shown us, in which God commanded runaway Moses to go back to Egypt, face Pharaoh, and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. Chapter 3, verse 10. And five times Moses pushed back, until finally, chapter 4, verse, four, verse 14, God's anger burnt against him. God gave a final speech, and then the closing credits rolled. What was going to happen? Would Moses obey? Will Moses trust what God has said, that God will enable him to do this work? Well, we pick up the story in 4 verse 18 with, uh, with the exposition, the setting of the scene of this new episode. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Phew, Moses obeys. He believes God's promise. And we don't have time to go into but, but everything falls into place. Father-in-law Jethro gives his blessing in 4 verse 18. Uh, those, who want Moses, those who want Moses dead have now themselves died, God announces in verses 19 and 20. There's a bit of a strange one next, but Moses' wife, Sipporah, circumcises probably Moses' son. Um, the Hebrew just uses him rather than the name Moses. 
And then as promised in 4 verse 14, God sends his big brother Moses, Aaron, to meet him. And Aaron gets on board with this mission in verses 27 and 28. And then Moses and Aaron return to Egypt. They gather the elders of Israel in verses 29 and 31. And they tell them what God has told Moses. And verse 31, they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Imagine that worship session. God's people, enslaved for 400 years, coming together and realising that their God really has heard them and really is going to deliver them. Imagine the euphoria, the celebration, the joy, the hope. And so you can almost imagine Moses and Aaron at the start of chapter five, going to Pharaoh with a sense of trepidation, of course, but with a sense perhaps of confidence, assurance, confirmation. God was with them. He was on their side. He was going to bless their mission. But we have read ahead. And this is where the conflict of this story hits. Now follow with me from chapter five, verse one. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron have done exactly what But verse two, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Ouch. And this is where the story takes a nosedive. For Pharaoh decides to teach these Israelites a lesson. They can say goodbye to their straw, verse 7 of chapter 5. But they will still need to make the same number of bricks, verse 8. So that, verse 9, they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Well, by verse 15, the Israelites are on their knees, crumbling under their inability to meet this impossible standard. Verses 15 and 16, the Israelite overseers make a desperate appeal to Pharaoh for clemency. His response? Verse 17, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now get to work. Imagine the smirk on Pharaoh's face, the tears, the shock, the despair on the Israelites' faces. Verses 20 and 21. They go back to Moses and Aaron and they say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Feel the force of those words. God had promised them everything. And look at them now. In an even worse state than they were in before. Can we blame them for feeling dejected? And now we reach, uh, we reach the climax. 
for as if uh, it couldn't get any worse. We see where Moses is at in chapter 5, verse 22. He's, he's been out, out of the scene, out of shop for a while now. And the answer is that he is nowhere good. Just look at what he prays. In chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. You have not rescued your people at all. Feel the pain in those words. And perhaps that resonates with you. Perhaps that has been your experience of the Christian life. You thought you were following God's plan. You thought you knew where you were heading and why. You had direction, vision, purpose in your life. You knew the promises of God. You felt particular promises God had given you for your life. And you gave up so much, so much to follow him. And now? Well, now you're not so sure. Things haven't worked out how you hoped, how you longed for. You find yourself feeling empty, struggling, alone. You're finding it hard to see hope. And like Moses, you're asking, why? Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble? Is this what you had planned? You have not rescued your people at all. Well, if that's you, hold on. Hold on. For this is not the end of this story. For we reach now the turning point in our story, part two, not Moses before Pharaoh, but Moses before God, a story of deliverance from chapter six, verse one to seven, verse seven. This is where the narrative arc that has been firmly on its way down after the high hopes at the start of chapter five begins to turn up. We find some resolution in this story some hope. For in Moses' doubt and in his despair, what does he do? He returns to God, 5 verse 22, and God speaks to him. God reminds Moses of who he is and he repeats his promises to him, but in a greater way than Moses or anyone has ever heard before. I think it's worth reading that whole section, chapter six, from verses one to eight again. Follow with me in your own Bibles. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, 
to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. My word, <laughs> there's so much we could pull out of those eight verses. So many riches. Let's just for a few moments meditate upon them now. I am the Lord. God says in verse two, if you're anything like me, you probably didn't even notice that phrase um, the first time you read it. But did you spot? God says it three times. Verse two, verse six, and again in verse eight. In fact, it bookends the little speech of verses two to eight, doesn't it? It's the first thing God says to Moses, and it's the last thing God says to Moses. Now, I don't think God thinks that Moses has forgotten. I don't think he's just reminding Moses of his name, like you or I might with a stranger. No, he's telling Moses who he is. What sort of person, what sort of a God he is. He's answering Pharaoh's question in chapter five, verse two, who is the Lord? Because God's name, it's not just something to mark him out from other people. It tells us who he is and what he is like. And we could just skip over it, couldn't we? I mean, how many times in our Bibles do we find the word Lord in little capital letters? Thousands. And, and, and that word Lord in little capital letters, it, it translates four Hebrew letters that, that we sometimes pronounce it as Yahweh or traditionally in Jehovah. But we skip over it at our peril. Because did you see what God said to Moses about his name here in verse three? I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that doesn't mean that God never said that his name was Yahweh, the Lord, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, as if it was some big secret. He tells them he's called Yahweh, the Lord, in Genesis 15, verse 7 and 28, verse 13. But it, it means that God was in the process of revealing himself to Moses and these Israelite slaves in a way that he had never revealed himself to human beings before. Moses and these slaves were going to see God 
in a way that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of their descendants had not seen. For they would not simply see God, which is um, the Hebrew word Elohim, or even God Almighty, El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, but they, they would see him as Yahweh, the Lord, a God who is going to rescue his people and give them a land, a God who is going to make a people his people, a God who is going to make a people his treasured possession and love them like they had never been loved before. And if that sounded hard to believe, when God first said it to Abraham, I don't think it was any easier to believe after, um, after centuries of slavery in Egypt. Moses and this Israelite people were going to know that their God is Yahweh, the Lord, the one who will rescue a people and give them a land in a way that no one had ever known before. And if there should be in any doubt as to what God was intending to do for them, uh, just count the number of I will statements in verses six to eight. Um, children, it's on your worksheets for you to spot. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be. I will bring you. I will give to you. There is not a shadow of a doubt. God will rescue them. Pharaoh's defiance has precisely zero impact upon God's plan. Moses reports God's words to the Israelites in chapter 6, verse 9, but in their discouragement and harsh labour, they can't bring themselves to listen or to hope. God tells Moses uh, in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, that he is to go to Pharaoh again. Moses protests his ineffectiveness in verse 12. If Israel has not listened to him, what likelihood is there that Pharaoh will? And then we, uh, we step outside the narrative for half a chapter or so, um, as we just saw in that graphic uh, that James did and as Pat read. And it feels weird to us modern readers, doesn't it, to have this genealogy in there. We're, we're used to reading one genre at a time. We're either reading a novel or a history textbook or an instruction manual or a recipe book. We don't, um, we don't expect there to be an interesting fact box in the middle of a chapter of Pride and Prejudice. Um, perhaps we should think of it as, um, as a bit like the recap slot on a TV talent show, sort of stepping outside the drama for a moment. And so we have in this genealogy, we have Moses, who likely wrote Exodus much later, when God's people were in the wilderness, um, at the same time as he wrote Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, as they waited to go into the promised land. Um, but we have Moses stepping outside of the story, to give us a quick peek of the family tree. Why? Well, there's lots of different answers to that question, but, but I, think, um, I think it's first and foremost to show his and Aaron's simple humanity. They were just ordinary people from an ordinary family, given the most extraordinary job. You see, this, this isn't all about Moses and Aaron. They're not the main characters, the heroes here. And don't we so often misread the Old Testament when we look for human heroes, for moral men and women that we can copy? No, no. This isn't all about Moses and Aaron. This is all about their great God. 
And we then jump back into the narrative at the end of chapter six with God's repeated command, Moses' fear and God's promise that he will redeem his people, but that it is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to get harder, much harder, for Pharaoh will not listen and God's people will have to be rescued through mighty acts of judgment. And we finish, much like where we began, with another cliffhanger. Tune in next week to see how it will all unfold. And doesn't this story, this narrative arc, remind us of Jesus, of his story? Jesus, who in his obedience made himself nothing. Jesus, who in his submission gave up everything. Jesus, who, though he is the eternal son of the father, became a nobody. If we feel for Moses and the Israelites, if we feel that they're justified in in coming back to God and asking why, how could this possibly be your plan? Wouldn't Jesus have been so much more justified? As he hung on that cross, wouldn't we have forgiven him for crying out why? How could you possibly ask me to go through with all this, Father, after everything I've already done for you, after all I've given up? Was it easy for Jesus as he hung on that cross to cling on to God's promises? To remember that this wouldn't be the end, that God had promised him a future? Surely not. Surely not. And yet he did cling to those promises. He was oppressed and afflicted. Isaiah writes, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not even rail against his earthly oppressors, let alone his father, whose will they were astonishingly in their rebellion performing. Now he trusted. He knew. He knew what Moses was only just beginning to realise. He knew that if God had promised something, God would do it, no matter how hard things got, no matter what it cost him to obey, God would do it. As he certainly did three days later, when Jesus rose from the grave. And today we see in Moses' example here and in Jesus' use of the songbook of the Psalms, a model for us for what to do when suffering hits and when suffering increases, even though we have obeyed. When we return to the Lord, as Moses did, we can be confident that he will provide for us. He may not answer our immediate hurt. He may not lessen the pain of following him right here, right now. But he is Yahweh, the Lord. And he has promised that he will rescue us. And he will give us a place to be his people. Not a physical land anymore, the land of Canaan, but a new creation. And when we get that, our every unhealed pain 
our every unfulfilled longing, our every hurt, our every heartache, our every tear, will not just be taken away as if it had never been, but it will mean something. It will be something God has used to show us and to show all of creation his glory. So when we are suffering, and particularly when we are suffering, not despite our disobedience, but because we have obeyed, then follow Moses' example. Follow Jesus' example. Come to God for the vision of him you need. Don't run away back to Midian, as Moses must have been tempted to do. Now come to God. Return to the Lord to see who he is what he is doing and what he will do. He will not let you down. And come to Christ, who has already been through such suffering before you, who knows your pain, who sympathises with you in your weakness, who walked the hard path before you, who will make you victorious when he returns in victory. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when Moses was in the pit of despair, when he had obeyed you and yet everything seemed to have gone wrong, thank you that he returned to the Lord. Thank you that he cried out to you just as Jesus did on the cross. And thank you that you answered with the most extraordinary revelation of who you are and with the certain promise of what you will do. Help us when we suffer, particularly when we suffer for following you. Help us to cling to Christ. Help us to cling to what he has already done for us on the cross. Help us to cling to your certain promises to us in Christ of our future hope, of a new creation. Amen.